Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I'm the director of the Legal One program. Today's episode is part of an ongoing series addressing staff mental health needs. On today's episode, we're going to be addressing how to support staff members after a loss or other traumatic event. We are pleased to have with us Mandy Zucker, who is the founder and president at Inner Harbor and a certified grief recovery specialist who will be joining us for this conversation and helping us think through the complex issues related to addressing loss for a staff member or other traumatic events that a staff member may be dealing with that obviously could have a dramatic impact on that individual in their personal life and in their ability to perform as a school employee. Mandy, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So before we begin our conversation, we do include in the resource materials related to our podcast information on the bereavement rights available to employees under state and federal law. Keep in mind that employers cannot discriminate against staff members struggling with their mental health needs related to a personal loss. In addition, employers cannot discriminate against staff members struggling with their mental health needs related to a personal loss. So before we get into specific questions about addressing loss, can you just let our listeners know a little bit about yourself, your background, your experience, and the work of Inner Harbor? So Inner Harbor started... um... It was really born about a little over two years ago. I have two children. My oldest is a junior in college. And when he left for school, he had a friend who also left for college who ended up taking his own life a few days after he got to college. And this was a boy whose father had died when he was 14. And at the time I was working in children's grief support. And when he died, I realized there's this huge hole in that young adult grief space. There was not a lot of support available for young adults and they're going through huge transitions in their lives. So I really dedicated myself and my work to supporting grieving students. So Inner Harbor was formed actually on the first anniversary of his death. But part of what I know is that in order to support those, that specific population, we have to support the supporters. So I really do work with basically everyone, anybody that's in the lives of children and and young adults after a significant loss. So that's really incredibly important work that you're doing. Can you uh, just share a little bit about your background, your educational experience, some of the other work that you've done? So I'm a social worker and you mentioned I'm a grief recovery specialist. I also have a certificate in thanatology, which is the study of death and dying. 
I sort of gotten, got into this field accidentally, but it found me very early on in my career. I was working in a hospital and I uh, was asked to run a bereavement group for kids, just like an eight week kind of program. So I took this job and it really changed the course of my career. I ended up working for about 12 years in the hospice space. And then I did a lot of nonprofit and school work, but the nonprofit work was really working with children, families, and young adults while they were diagnosed with an illness or after somebody had died. So let's talk a little bit about the process that an individual goes through when they have suffered a loss. You know, many people believe that there are set stages that we all go through when we suffer a loss of a loved one. Can you discuss the common elements of our human experience regarding loss and then some of the ways that our responses can vary, some, sometimes very dramatically, from one person to the next? It's interesting because that idea of stages actually comes from the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is really a pioneer in the study of death and dying. But those stages that she talked about were actually meant for people who were dying, meant as phases of acceptance of the end of their life, not meant for bereavement. In bereavement, unfortunately, there's not such neat stages. I wish we could say, okay, well, now we're angry, but tomorrow we're going to be depressed and then we're going to get to an acceptance phase. It just doesn't work so nice and neatly. The other thing about those stages is that it sort of tends to make people think that there's an end, you know, that you go through these things and then you get to a point of acceptance or whatever you want to call it, closure, another word I'm not a big fan of, but typically grief does have a beginning, something that happens that sort of starts that process, but it's not really a, a process that ends. You know, my own father died 18 and a half years ago. And, you know, to this day, I still grieve that loss. I miss him. I long for him. I sometimes still pick up the phone and want to call him. It's different than it was 18 years ago for sure, but I don't expect that that grief will ever go away. So I am cautious of talking about grief in stages because I don't want people to think that they're not doing it right. They're not going through those stages correctly. There is no right or wrong way really for people to grieve. You know, grief is just, grief is the normal and natural feelings that we all have after we experience a loss. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of the feelings that we have, right? I sort of, I think of it like the weather, it just happens. We don't get to control that. So it's just a normal process, but it looks very different for each of us. That's so important to stress how unique the experience can be for individuals. So while we all deal with loss in unique ways, why is it still important to provide safe outlets for school staff members to share what they're experiencing? And what do you think are some of the steps that school districts could play in creating those safe outlets? Listen, I think one of the things that this pandemic has taught all of us is that we don't leave our personal lives at home when we walk in the door to work. And I think that that's actually a really good thing. You know, I'm at work right now, but you're also in my, you know, in my space, you know, we're looking at each other on screens, you're in my home. So I haven't actually left my home to go to work. And many of us, if we've been, you know, privileged enough to be able to work from home, have really struggled with separating home and work. We don't get to leave the screaming kids at home when we go to our jobs. There's, you know, the plumbers making noise when I'm trying to do a conference call. But in some ways, I really think that that's a silver lining because it brings this awareness that we need to acknowledge that we're bringing our whole selves to work. And I think we can't deny 
our, you know, teachers, people that are working in a school, that they're also parents, they're caregivers, their spouses, you know, they are whatever else they are. And that continues with them just because they come to their job as a teacher, let's say. And I think that that's a good thing. If we can acknowledge that we're all going through stuff and, you know, right now we are all going through stuff. I think it can make us all very much more appreciative of our work. It can reduce the burnout. It can make us more productive and connected to our work and our colleagues and make us, you know, just better people in general. If we're expecting teachers to be part of a support system for their students, we need to be able to model for them that it's okay to talk about really hard things in that environment. So if we're going to expect our students to share with us if they're having a rough day, teachers have to be willing to hear that. They have to know that it's okay to talk about that kind of stuff. So um, if they're not allowed to be vulnerable at work, they may not feel like allowing their students to be vulnerable is an okay thing. You know, I always felt like, you know, you go on a job interview and the employer will ask you like, so what do you do for self-care? Like, how do you take care of yourself? And I always think that part of the responsibility for self-care is on the employers. You need to create those outlets for your employees to be able to take care of some of the personal things that are going on in their life. Now, that doesn't mean that employers are supposed to be responsible for everything. You should be able to take a vacation and do things that you enjoy outside of work, but there should be opportunities at work for people to be able to, you know, blow off a little bit of steam, to have opportunities to get support, to be able to share something that's going on in their lives. That takes care of your employees, which in turn takes care of your clients, right? Which could be students. That's a great point. Um, I know that for many school leaders and other staff members, they want to be supportive of their colleagues who are dealing with a loss, mm -hmm. but they're not sure what to do. They're not sure what to say. They're worried that um, they'll say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, perhaps make the situation worse, perhaps right. um, you know exacerbate the, the negative feelings that somebody is already struggling with. So can you talk about how a school leader um, or uh, just a, a colleague working in a school might most effectively be able to um, support others who are dealing with a loss? What are some of those best practices? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'd like to say that most people that are going through something really difficult find their ways. I think we all have it sort of within us to reach out for the support that we need. But I think most importantly is asking. You know, when you know someone's going through something difficult, ask them because what I might want is very different than what you might want, right? I'm a hugger. So when I'm, you know, struggling, I'd like for somebody to come up and give me a hug. That makes me feel supported and connected to other people. You may not want a hug. I can't tell by looking at you whether or not you would want a hug. So I could do the wrong thing, even with, you know, the, the best intention. Often we do for others what we would want done for ourselves. So if I see you struggling, I'm going to think to myself, he just wants a hug you know, which may or may not be true, right? So asking people what would be helpful for you in this moment goes so far, you know? There's really like a couple of things. I think there's sort of two camps. There's this concrete tasks. Some people need some things done. Um, and for many people that feels really good to be able to do something, right? Like I'm gonna bring you a meal. I'm gonna mow your lawn. I'm gonna pick up your dry cleaning, those kinds of things feel really good. And then there's the other part, the emotional support. 
in many ways, it's even more simple than the concrete tasks, but it's also much more difficult because our role is really just to listen, to be there and be present, to get people to say more about what they're going through. So to just say things like, tell me what this has been like for you, I can't imagine, and then be quiet. You don't offer advice. You don't try to cheer them up or fix anything. That's the simplicity of it because you don't need to fix it. You can't fix it, right? If somebody just died, the only thing they really want you to do is bring their person back and we can't do that. So there is no fixing. There's no cheering them up, you know, taking them out for an ice cream cone is not going to make them feel better because somebody died. But for some reason, we put this pressure on ourselves to try to make people feel better. But really just being there, just letting them share their experience with you without being bombarded with advice and, uh, you know, things to do, you should, you shouldn't. Often that's really what people need and they don't get a lot about that. So if we could be that container to just let them talk, that's huge. Sometimes it's bigger than the mowing of the lawn or the carpooling or the, you know, the casseroles that we can bring over. It's very important that you, you ended on that point that sometimes it is bigger. So there are times where a staff member is trying to support a colleague and maybe now you start to get concerned that that colleague could be entering a crisis situation and might need some help that is beyond what a colleague can do. What are some of the signs that a staff member might be entering that sort of a crisis situation and how should we respond if we think that's happening? It's a really good question. And I think it's one of the reasons that people don't ask how people are doing because they're afraid. What if they say they're doing really bad and I don't know what to do. So we tend not to ask people, which leaves them, right? If they're already in a vulnerable place and then no one's reaching out to them, it actually makes it worse, right? So it is so important to ask. And I will say that most people that have experienced even a really significant traumatic loss, they do okay. So they might be really sad, scared, angry, lonely, but most of them are going to do fine. So remember that when you're about to ask someone, it doesn't mean, you know, because someone died that they want to kill themselves, which I think is our biggest fear that they're going to say that to us. And then we're not going to know what to do. So asking sometimes is all they need to, to keep them from that very dark place. We don't put ideas in people's heads asking them how they're doing, even asking them if they want to hurt themselves, have they thought about it, um, isn't putting the idea in their head. If somebody said to me like, oh, you're going through a rough time, have you thought about killing yourself? I'm not going to kill myself because they said that to me. Actually, what it might do is make me say, it's crossed my mind, now I know I can talk to you about it. So asking them lets them know that you're a person you, that they can talk to. Again, you're not necessarily supposed to be the one that's going to fix all of that for them. But letting them talk about it is huge because if they don't talk to you about it, they might not talk to anyone. I'll tell you what to do in a second if that does happen in those very rare instances. But before that, I would just say that it's not always possible to see signs when somebody's really in imminent danger. There's not always signs. But there are things that we can look for and things that we can do to be supportive. I think we could just highlight, you know, a couple things. One thing is that we always should be looking at behavior. So it doesn't mean that we have to think about like sort of the stereotypical signs, like someone's giving away all of their possessions or 
writing suicide notes, those things are, you know, sort of grand gestures. We may or may not see those. But if we could all just be observant of changes, you might notice that a colleague has become quieter or more withdrawn. Maybe they've just stopped talking about some of the things that they used to enjoy. Again, that's not to say that they're suicidal, but it is, you know, different. So they are struggling. And that's okay to acknowledge, right? Those things are fairly common in grief. A lot of people will experience lack of interest or some sort of social withdrawal. It doesn't mean they're suicidal. It just means that they're struggling, right? But we can acknowledge that. We can just say to them, like, I've noticed that you haven't been coming out to our weekly card game or, you know, and I miss you. And I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing because I'm sure that you're going through a rough time. That's huge. And it also just lets the person know that they can talk about what, oh yeah, it's been, it's been a few, you know, it's been a, a rough time for me. Um, it lets them know that they can talk about that. And if their situation does become more imminent or more of a crisis, you've opened the door for them to be able to talk to you. If they do say, yes, I am thinking about hurting myself. I've been storing pills in my room. I have access to a weapon. Some of the kinds of things that are really concerning. And again, very rare. But if someone says those kinds of things, what you want to do is just make sure that you stay with them until they get through this imminent danger. So you stay with them and say, you know what? Let's walk down to the counselor's office. I want to make sure that you're with someone that to make sure that you're safe. Is there a family member that I can call that can come pick you up and be with you tonight? There's crisis hotlines that are amazing and very well-trained volunteers, usually on the other end of that line. Let's call the hotline together. If you're really scared, you call 911. So there are things that you can do if you really feel like there's danger for the person. But most of the time we can intervene much earlier. We're just afraid to ask, how are you? I know it's been, you know, three months since your spouse died. How have you been? I just wanted to let you know I've been thinking about you. And if we do that, sometimes we can avoid getting that person to a really dark place. That's very helpful. And I think it is important for those who want to help to know that you don't have to be the expert on suicidal ideation mm -hmm. and dealing with crisis situations. It is rare that the conversation goes in that direction, but if it does, just recognizing when you need to bring in additional supports Absolutely. is really important. Now, of course, for some staff members who suffer a loss, they do need time away from work. And then as you're returning, that can be challenging. What are some of the best practices for helping staff members return to the workplace following a loss? And sometimes they're returning after a few days, but sometimes it's a much more extended period of time away. Yeah. There's actually some bill that's being thought about right now because there's actually no federal bereavement leave policy. People can actually be fired for going to their parents, their spouses, their child's funeral if they don't have time off. So first of all, I think that each district should be thinking about what their policy is. There should be a policy in place for allowing for bereavement time. Even places that do have a policy, it's often pretty weak. I worked at a grief support center. We had a three-day policy, and I worked in a grief support center. So if my child or my spouse died, I would be, you know, allowed three days off. I have to assume that maybe they would have, you know, been nice and given me more time if I needed it. But that's crazy to think that you're going to be able to plan a funeral and attend religious services 
and also mourn in a way that you feel ready to go back to work. And I don't know what the right amount of time is because we're all different and all of our situations are different, but there are some things that we can do no matter when you come back to work to make the transition more comfortable for both, you know, the griever as well as their colleagues. I mentioned before, I think asking, you know, before they come back to work, ask them, how do you want to be greeted when you come back to work? Do you want people to acknowledge that you've been out? Do you want people to talk to you in the hallway when you're walking down? Or do you want, you know, maybe just at lunchtime when you're, you know, in a quiet space or something for people to ask you how you're doing or offer their condolences if they're looking for that. Some teachers may say, I just need to come to work and focus and I don't want to talk about it. And that feels safe for them. But letting them have that option so that they know what they can expect when they walk in that door makes them feel safer to walk in that door the first time. If they don't know, they might need an extra few days to sort of prepare themselves to come back to work. And then there's other things, again, concrete things that we can ask them about, like what are some of the things we could take off your plate? Or what are some things that you find to be really helpful right now? Like they may say that grading papers is too much because they're just, they're just able to you know, expend enough energy to be present with their students all day. And then at the end of the day, they go home and they crash and that's all they can do. So maybe there's somebody else that can pick up some of that slack, or maybe they're going to say that that's the easier thing to do for them. Like they prefer that they need, you know, during a prep time, they just want to like stay in their own classroom, get their grades and assignments done. So asking them, what do they think is going to be helpful for them? Would you like, you know, if it's possible, and again, it's important to have a policy about this, but do you start coming back for a half day? Do mornings work for you? Do afternoons work for you? Does every other day work for you? Whatever it is for them that feels appropriate and comfortable for them. So giving them any kinds of modifications or accommodations helps them reduce some of that fear and uncertainty that they don't know what's going to happen when they walk in that door. So I'd also just say that, you know, grief it's exhausting. It takes up a lot of brain power. So expecting employees to come back to work at the same capacity that they did before a loss is probably not feasible. So being flexible with them as an employer, when they ask for help, that goes a long way in creating a culture where they feel like I can come to work after a loss. I can talk about this because I know that there is support and help available to me if I need it. So that's a wonderful advice. And I do have to say that the theme that kept occurring to me as you were talking about this, in a situation where the employee in many ways feels powerless because you can't control the loss, finding ways to empower that person and have them really direct um, to the extent that we can the sorts of supports that you're going to provide, mm -hmm. I, I think that can be you know, incredibly helpful. Absolutely. And when you think about it, we want to be able to do the same thing for the students, right? But if the teachers aren't given that same flexibility and those same accommodations, they're not getting that modeling. So they're not necessarily going to know to do that for the kids. So I want to thank you so much for this great conversation, Mandy. Any final thoughts you have for those who are thinking about supporting their colleagues or perhaps just dealing uh, with a loss themselves? I would just say that there's always support out there. There's a ton of resources. I certainly, you know, would love to be a resource to people if they are struggling, if their school district's looking to create policies, I'm happy to help them with that. 
but there's a ton of resources out there. So feel free to reach out to me. I can help you find something or even just, you know, Google. Uh, there's some really good information out there about how to support colleagues, how to support a friend who's grieving and how to support students. So Mandy, uh, once again, thank you for joining us and for taking time to share such important information. Thank you so much for having me. I really feel like this is such an important topic and I am really glad to be able to give some information to your audience. For those who are listening to this podcast on the Legal One website, we are providing additional resources in a companion PowerPoint that's linked to this discussion. So we will provide you with some additional resources to help yourself and to help your colleagues who are dealing with loss. So with that, I uh, want to thank you again, Mandy, uh, such an important conversation. I want to thank all of those who are listening and taking the time to focus on this incredibly important issue of staff mental health. Uh, we encourage you to share this information with your colleagues to make them aware of this podcast and the additional resources that uh, we are posting on our website. We certainly encourage all of our listeners to go to the Legal One website for additional information regarding Legal One. Uh, that website is www.njpsa.org slash Legal One NJ. We also encourage you to go to the website of the New Jersey PTA, which has been a wonderful partner with us at www.njpta.org. In addition, for this series of podcasts that we have developed regarding staff mental health, we have been working very closely with the New Jersey Schools Insurance Group, and in particular, their Eric North Subfund. So we encourage you to go to the New Jersey Schools Insurance Group website as well at www.njsig.org. And finally, Arthur J. Gallagher has been a wonderful partner in putting all of this together. So we encourage you to look at information on their website at www.ajg.com. Thank you, everyone. Be safe, be well, and we look forward to having you with us for future episodes of the Legal One podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.